Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Keeping it, she was uh, keeping it going yeah. uh, right till the final <laughs> moment. To the final moment. I did like her diet tips. <laughs> I was going to make some of the recipes tips. actually, but I didn't get around. To Which it. ones were you going to make? I don't know. I skipped over them a bit, and then I thought, well, I could maybe do one of those for Sunday night. Can what? I just tip a pot of cottage cheese on plate. <laughs> well, it might get me in the mood. Hello, and welcome to episode six of the FT Business Book Challenge podcast the place to discover the best in business writing. I'm Helen Barrett, the FT's Work and Careers Editor. With me is Andrew Hill, Management Editor, and Emma Jacobs, Columnist and Work and Careers Writer. The idea is simple. We're challenging you to read six classic business books in 12 weeks. Each book is chosen by an FT columnist. You get two weeks to read it before we drag ourselves back into the studio to discuss it. And we would love it if you joined in the discussion by tweeting us using the hashtag FTBizBooks or emailing us at businessbookclub at ft.com. In episode five, Emma set her intriguing choice of book, Sex and the Single Girl by Helen Gurley Brown, the 1962 best-selling handbook for modern life for a generation of young working women. But before we get to that book, Emma, what are you reading at the moment? So I should be reading for my book club, Paul Beatty's Sellout, but I just can't really face it. <laughs> what I am reading is um, Lynn Barber's A Curious Career because I sort of feel that we get lots of books I mean this is part of our discussion later but I we get lots of books as a department on how to be passionate about your career how to get on you mean we get sent we get books. sent lots of yes. books but you don't actually get books on the content of your actual job and um and so I can't I can't I, I've read this before but I do like to go back to it and just see what she thinks about how to do the job um, and uses examples of interviews that she's done before just to sort of get a few interviews in a... I mean, obviously, we do interviews as a job and just to see how she structures it and thinks about them. Lynn Barber is an extremely successful journalist with the Sunday Times. And the Independent. And the Independent. And she started her career... She wrote this book about her career as an interviewer about five years ago, is that correct? It was follow-on from an education that she'd written about the affair that she'd had with a married man. and, And suddenly people became interested in her actual life. And also that she's good at writing long books rather than just interviews it's about the craft of the the interview because she started at playboy penthouse penthouse yeah which is not actually where you would imagine a oxford graduate in the 1950s no, and 60s I mean, would start a actually, career i didn't do this on purpose but it sounds like i did i mean it's got it's got parallels with girlie brown's book in that she kind of nagged and persuaded her way into doing an interview 
And I think, I might be wrong, but I think her first interview was with Salvador Dali. I mean, her first extended one, she was generally, her kind of journalistic bits were to interview people about their sex lives. And they were anonymous, so it was fine. But it didn't give her a kind of shot at doing longer form interviews. Mm -hmm. But with Salvador Dali, she ended up staying quite a few days and did a really good job and got to do more later. And, And so... So actually, I didn't think about this beforehand, but <laughs> it turns out that there's a running theme that actually you can kind of create your own breaks. Does she talk in the book about how she does the interviews or is it just yeah, it is. the I mean, interviews republished? Yeah, there were. I mean, there's one. I, I mean, I'm only a bit way through it again, but the um, most recent one is one that I've read that didn't go well. And she talks about why it didn't go well and also the ethics and of how to do an interview and trends and sort of fashions in it and the amount of research she does and and just the kind of I suppose the kind of when we do our jobs we don't really talk about how we do it in the end how you kind of break it down it's sort of you go off and do it and then you and then you do another job and then you do another you know and with this she kind of just gives little notes like she does all the transcribing herself what that gives her and 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 just I suppose things like that really listeners will know you as a as a writer as an ft columnist they'll have seen your byline do you ever get the chance to interview someone in the way that lynn barber does over the course of two or three days following them around no have you ever done that um i can't think that i have you know that real sort of new yorker (laughs) style of no i'd love to i mean i think that obviously things have changed and she's kind of you know she's very much of a you know she's in her 70s she doesn't need to be working for, I mean maybe she does but I, I I don't know her so I don't want to kind of do all these <laughs> things on it. um but now it's much harder to take time away from the desk you know the the constraints of of staffing and expenditure obviously it's much better to go and see people and you do go and see people to do proper interview but the um that the idea that you'd spend a few days trailing after them i mean i've tried Andrew, to have you ask, done it? i've tried to ask people but generally of kind of chief executive level whether they'll whether they'll tolerate the idea of a sort of fly on the wall approach but most of them are frankly too sensible to want to submit to having an ft journalist hanging around with them for for a long period i mean i think colleagues have done have, have managed yeah. to do this but uh, i mean it, have... it's quite well managed these days in particular with higher profile I mean, that's, that, yeah, that's the other, you're right, that's the other bit of the problem, which is the, they don't want you to be hanging around with them. Um, or you've got a PR breathing down your neck. You've got a PR stage managing it. I mean, the, I mean, you know, it's always best to get people doing something. So it's good if they're a shop, um, if they're a CEO of a retailer, it's good to see them on the shop floor and see yes, how they interact with, with people. Mm. And, and because of the focus that I tend to have, it's about how people do their jobs. So you want to see people doing it. But also you want to see how they interact with their employees and make sure they're not just being nice to you. And I mean, invariably, they are just being nice to you. <laughs> I mean, you, you must have interviewed hundreds of people over the course of your career. Who, who's the most interesting and effective manager that you've ever interviewed? That's a really difficult who, who, question. Yeah, I mean, I tell you what, the, the people that are I find often are the most interesting are real people and people who share their stories. And, I mean, you do want to talk to people. I mean, this is a point that Lynn Barber makes as well. 
you do want to talk to people at the top of their game because they've reached it and that takes a lot, you know, and they've, they've sacrificed a lot or they might have been very lucky or it'd be, and you want to know how they've done it. I mean, they are often remarkable people. I, I don't want to make out that they're less interesting, you know, because they're not of the real world or, you know, whatever that is. But often you get the best stories from people who are, you just can't believe they tell you their actual stories, you know, that they confide all their, you know, intimacies. And, and I mean, I still find it incredible that people do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is a real, it's a real cliche to say this, but it is a real privilege when people say those kind of things. Andrew, what are you reading at the moment? So I'm about two thirds, about a third of the way through, um, a novel called Golden Hill by Francis Spufford, which is a novel set in the 18th century in Manhattan, which, of course, then was only a very small settlement, really, of 7,000 inhabitants. And it's a, well, it's a tale so far of a stranger who arrives with a bill of £1,000 that he wants paying out and so immediately he becomes a figure of mystery because people don't know well, what are his bona fides for this £1,000. Should they give him the credit? If they don't give him the credit, will they look foolish because he'll, he's obviously a wealthy man? And it's uh, uh, told more or less from his point of view, and it's written in a style which is very 18th century. It's a, it's a tale of sort of adventures in the new world, if you like. I mean, what I'm enjoying about it very much is the way in which it kind of portrays Manhattan and knowingly, but without doing this in a clumsy way, foreshadows what Manhattan was to eventually become, it's set in sort of 1746. So you're, you're mm -hmm. under British rule. It's well before the uh, War of Independence. And it's got all sorts of beautiful detail. I think Francis Bufford is a historian. This may be his first novel. Got lots of beautiful detail about what it would have been like there. So it conjures this incredible atmosphere. And of course, modern reading is coloured by the fact that you know what New York became. So I'm enjoying it very much. And what are the management lessons, the question we always ask? Well, I guess it's a bit like a sort of. I, I guess the book is a little bit like the a way of taking the perspective of looking at what a place would become by throwing you back and putting you in the shoes of somebody who would have no conception of what Manhattan was going to become, you're given a little bit of an idea of how if you imagining a future uh, might help you imagine how plans would play out over many years. But that's a very tenuous management connection. And Emma, what are the management lessons? Well, it's not a management lesson, but I mean, the people that we meet, me and Andrew, in um, in the course of our jobs are often very managed by PRs and that increasingly so now that PRs are doing interviews to go on external websites and so on. It's a very stage managed image. And I think that part of reading interviews is that you want to get a feel for the real person and actually that doesn't need to be a terrible thing for the interviewee that it brings them to life and that they you know they shouldn't be so scared of going off script a little bit I mean I, I can see the downsides for them but to be a kind of corporate robot that projects a very sterile corporate message does turn people off. You're not interested in them. I mean, and mm. it, all it does is trigger kind of what have they got to hide, what's really going on. It seems too good to be true, really. We would say that as journalists, <laughs> I suppose. But I agree with yeah, Emma. I, I, think that, I think there is a... And I think the point is 
in a way, I respect people for saying, I am never going to give an interview. Mm. But if you are then going to give an mm. interview, or if you have taken a public role that involves you meeting journalists, then you will need to have some element of openness that uh, that you you should be ready for um, and not just be the corporate automaton. One person who was never reclusive, who was always open to an interview, was Helen Gurley Brown, the uh, author of Emma's chosen book, Sex and the Single Girl. Her 1962 best-selling handbook for modern life and for a generation of young working women we, for this podcast, Emma, we're skipping the chapters on how to have affairs and how to eat. And we're looking specifically, yeah, <laughs> we're looking specifically at the chapter on women at work. Emma, why is this chapter a business book classic? So I felt I did actually feel a bit guilty making you and Andrew read this book in its entirety. <laughs> uh, and uh, I thought it was an opportunity to talk about dating with Andrew, but <laughs> in an FT context. But um, but we're going to zone in on this chapter. And I think that the real value of it is that actually a lot of the books that today about feminism and women at work tend to focus on women at an executive level, women that are trying to get into boards, you know, how to negotiate their next big career move. And actually, there's a real dearth of books that are targeted at women much lower down the corporate ladder. and um, Or even just a bit down the corporate or ladder. Or even just a bit down the corporate <laughs> ladder. I mean, the lean-ins and, and others are very much focused on, you know, how to get a bigger, bigger job. And this is just really how to, you know, what the value of work is. Obviously, it's a hugely different time. The 1960s is still explaining to women what work might give you. It might give you an identity. It might pass the time before you get married. So, you know, those sort of things aren't the kind of discussions you tend to have now. But I do think that it does give you some sort of opportunity to talk about how to just get on and, and how to get on with it, more to the point, because... She she talks about just get into a company, and in some ways it seems much more <laughs> timely than than I had anticipated because there's a lot of dream, the big dream about your career, and a lot of this stuff about being creative. And actually, one of her core messages is get on with it, do the grunt work, and see how you get on, really. And so I thought that that was quite a helpful message to men and women. <laughs> it, it is worth, isn't it, talking about how old-fashioned and how dated much of this book looks to us as readers in 2016 now. Andrew, what do you think? Yeah, well, it, I mean, it immediately, of course, evoked, if if you can evoke something that is more modern than the thing that is evoking um the 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 whole world of mad men the the tv series and in fact matthew weiner the director of that series used this and interestingly i read betty frieden's the feminine mystique as kind of two books that were sort of source material for the atmosphere that he was painting and so it does conjure up an entire world that has gone thank goodness um and a way of working both for men and for women. I mean, a lot of the things in it, in the chapters we're not addressing, uh, are mm. things that would have you immediately carted off to HR <laughs> as, a, as a woman or a man in the current climate. So it's a, um, it's, a, it's a relic from that point of view. But I agree with Emma. I think there's quite a lot that is still relevant. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't hand it out as a, as a manual of how to behave. But there's a piece, for example, 
where I, I checked because I was reading it on the Kindle, which means that you can look up the passages that other people have highlighted. And the most highlighted passage is this line about what you have to do is work with the raw material you have, namely you, and never let up. That is the most highlighted passage. That's the most passage. highlighted passage. So that's the modern, Kindle, I'm so presuming modern that's people. modern, mostly women, yes. um, seeing something in that that they can hang on to. And actually it's got, that, that is one quite sort of modern and probably eternal way of thinking about work, it seems to me, as a, mm. as a, in a positive way, which is saying you don't have to think of some ideal way of going about advancing in the workplace. You have to work with what you've got and you can never give up. And the other bit that occurred to me that was, that was quite modern was this idea of putting yourself in the right place to be accidentally get an opportunity, which again is quite a, a modern way. She talks about being in a position that men are always are not always planning their careers. They just sometimes put themselves in a position where they get the opportunity to advance and how that is one way in which women should be able to advance in the workplace. I thought it was interesting that it was very much pitched at women who were non-graduates, who presumably were entering the workforce straight from school. And she assumed that her reader would not be a college graduate and she herself was not a college graduate. Helen Gurley Brown had a, I think she said, 17 jobs before yes. she found her. I found that quite inspiring. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she was a jobbing secretary, wasn't she? She she started as a secretary. She was obviously very bright and capable and uh, was championed by one particular boss who she, she talks about in the book. But this idea that you, you would start at the bottom and find your place, this isn't really possible in the modern workplace or or is it is this something that we're perhaps overlooking as women i think that the i mean there's a kind of trope isn't there of the secretary turned hotshot it's difficult isn't it because everything's changed university education has expanded so so it's normal for people to go to university whereas it wasn't so much when she was writing it i mean i think there is less on how to kind of just navigate your way from the bottom. I mean, there's obviously mixed advice on whether you should be a secretary as a starting job now. The division is that some people, you know... Are there any secretaries anymore? (laughs) Yeah, well, exactly, there's (laughs) that as well. I mean, you know, should you be a personal assistant? Should you... Will you always look like you're in the shadow of, you know, the kind of doing the photocopying? Is that how you want to be perceived? But then, of course... Lots of people do start off as PAs and do very well out of it. And it's a good insight into how top levels of business work and how to navigate your way through the corporate jungle, really. But the, I mean, I suppose the other thing about it looking so dated is that, you know, we take a lot of business books as classics that have been written many years ago. And we don't take on board that so many other things have changed, that these are kind of truisms. But when you look at the kind of workforce and how much that has changed, how many more opportunities women have, how you, how you shouldn't harass women at work and all these other things that we just some of these truisms, you know, that they're sort of less enduring because worlds have changed so much. And this is just quite refreshing on understanding how things have changed at work. I mean, it was clearly a catalyst as a book for for a number of a large number of women who were reading it as a way of revolutionising themselves, radicalising themselves, mm-hmm. if you like, in the in the workplace, and not just in the workplace, but in the sense that there are still things that are that are relevant. I mean, you have to obviously strip away quite a lot of the of the background discussion 
and focus in on on some of the uh, some of the enduring points. But I mean, it's worth remembering that around the same time, there would have been lots of other there were a lot of management books that we've completely forgotten about, and very few that have that have survived. So even with its outdated environment, obviously this one has retained an element of relevance in the same way that a very few management books from the 1960s have also endured. I think I'm right in saying in that before this book, nobody had really written for women in this way, in an, access- an accessible handbook for modern life, that she'd really sort of hit on something. And this was something that she developed in her career because she went on... Three years after she wrote this book, she then became executive editor of Cosmopolitan magazine, which now is not a particularly uh, notable magazine, but in the second half of the 1960s and the 70s was very much associated with the second wave of feminism. It it very much championed working women and encouraged women to uh, support themselves and be self-sufficient. And th- and there's there's hints of this. There's like a very early glimpse of those. For anyone who remembers those cosmopolitan covers from the 1970s, there there are hints of this in Sex and the Single Girl. Like for example, her pronouncements about why a single woman should have a job, and she very much advocates that single women should have a job. She says things like, "A single woman is known by what she does rather than whom she belongs to." And a job gives a single woman something to be. And the better your job, the better your standing as a single woman. These are all almost like magazine cover lines, aren't they? She's brilliant at this, just distilling these these bits of advice into easy to remember slogans that that resonate with women she's also got i think quite a you know realistic view of what happens if you get stuck if you get into the wrong job of the many things that you're trying out i mean I, my favorite line was if you get into a situation where you're not working for the right people. I mean, she has one of her tips is try to work for a benevolent management. Well, of course, you may not know that before (laughs) you go into get into a job. But uh, her line is, if you're working for toads, drain all the experience you can from the pond and move to a new one, which is, I think, quite good advice. It's essentially Mm -hmm. saying, you know, you're still going to learn something there, but just don't hang around. And also, she says, make sure you're not the toad yourself. Yes. I mean, yes. to yourself. So don't, I mean, basically don't sabotage your own career. Yes. Which I thought was interesting. And also she makes clear that she's writing at a time when the, the economy is booming. She tells her readers all the time that, you know, this is the best time to be in a career because you can flip from job to job. Obviously, that's not so possible anymore. So, you know, if if you are stuck working for toads, you might not be able to move about with quite the uh, the fluidity that she was able to in 1962. One part of the book that I thought was possibly the bit that has changed the least for women was the bit about talking about a raise. If you think about books like, you know, more modern books for for women like Lean In, they they very much imagine that you are going to have a pay negotiation where you sit down with somebody who's controlling your pay and negotiate how much you're going to be paid. And uh, Helen Gurley Brown has none of this. There's there's absolutely no pay negotiation in um, Sex and the Single Girl. There are in, there is instead a, a chapter heading, learn the facts about raises, and then she she's very very clear. Um, she sets you straight that it is up to the company to pay you as little as it can and still get you to stay. There is no negotiation, is there? But she's right to point this out. I mean, she's 
it's yeah, pragmatism, it was isn't it? Yeah, no, I thought it was interesting. I mean, it was good to to bring out the parallel. Why would you pay your cleaner more if you know if you don't have to? Kind of. Maybe yes, that's her point about the only <laughs> way to get the only way she says that she knows to get a raise is to be so good they can't get anybody like you for the same money. I mean, I agreed with some of her things about a pay rise, which is point out that you do the work of seven people or how brilliant you are. But I didn't agree with the bits where she said, say how expensive your rent is. Tell everyone <laughs> <laughs> your boss really won't be interested in your life story or or what this money means to you. They're, they're just not interested. But I, I thought the kind of practical, pragmatic approach instead of, you know, imagine a universe where the heavens part and everybody understands your value. That just doesn't happen. I have to ask, because I don't have any <laughs> answer myself, but is there anything in her section about be a woman that is relevant today? I mean, she she says, uh, she points out that you should use feminine wiles, essentially, to uh, put yourself in a position to get some of these roles. Yes. I mean, she, argue, she, does, she does, incidentally... Advise even in this, even in these earlier times, advise against sleeping with your <laughs> she, boss to get to the top. Although she she, she she's perfectly um, tolerant of people who do, though, isn't she? She's she makes it clear she's not there to judge anyone at all. I, I love this line: "We owe the battle axes of another era more than we can ever pay. They had to be hard as nails and drive themselves in like nails to compete with men. Not you, Magnolia Blossom. The charm <laughs> that brings him to your side after five will enlist him in your behalf at the six-month salary review." <laughs> um, no, there's absolutely nothing there that resonates. Good to hear. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about Emma. Um, yes, it all resonates. <laughs> no, the. Um, but isn't there something about using your assets, whatever they are, whether you look good or whatever? I mean, men aspire to that now, surely. You know, the whole kind of culture of business, men looking good, going to get cosmetic surgery so they let you look younger to compete in the jobs market. I mean, that's not completely mad. I mean, people do want to look good. No, and also mm. if you look at something like Lucy Kellaway's Agony Aunt column, yeah. you know, there are occasional reader problems involving things like how do I explain to my colleague who smells horrible yes. that they need to sharpen up and so on I mean there aren't these are not um, these, these are not issues she did recommend are... having a bath every day actually didn't she, she did. <laughs> I thought it was sort of yeah. surprising <laughs> but she didn't recommend washing your hair too often I think two or three weeks was the uh, dry yeah. shampoo that's <laughs> certainly changed um, and then I think probably the best way to describe the chat job work the, the one sort of constant theme that comes through or certainly came through for me was this emphasis on moderate expectations in the short and immediate term I mean there, there was a sort of cross-heading don't demand instant glamour Mm. Yes, there's a sort of realism involved in the whole in the whole project. I think. I mean, which is which I think is quite refreshing, which is essentially relevant to women and men. I think of, of not raising your expectations too high for what work is immediately going to deliver to you. I mean, it's not a council of despair either. She's no. obviously very upbeat throughout. And keeps, yes, keeps that up upbeat. despite <laughs> despite a background. Um, environment as we've described that that is, that is obviously still pretty demeaning for, for lots of women at work but I mean I, I think that realism is quite refreshing. The whole aspect of singledom and that actually a lot of books these days that are catering towards women are balancing family demands and work and actually single uh, households are, are a growing part of the population and 
And there is a danger in lots of discussions with HR professionals and so on that, you know, that you do too much to, not too much, there can never be too much, to target families, um, you know, people with family responsibilities and you neglect people who have other responsibilities that that don't have children or don't have partners and don't have to rush home at 5.30 or whatever to to look after their family. And, And there is a kind of growing, small but significant growing awareness of the kind of commercial opportunities of single households and, you know, the communal living and the property industry are kind of waking up to this. She very much makes it her business to make single people feel good about themselves, mm. doesn't she? Yeah. It's all about sort of trying to encourage you to feel really good about being single. And she yeah. has this final chapter called something like The Full Round Life, um, where she sets out the case for this. And it is quite... I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it made me want to be single, but, but it did sound very appealing. She makes it sound glamorous and optimistic. And I think maybe that's lacking from modern day... Yeah, it's what you don't have. It's not having a man or, I mean, not in the FT, but in Cosmopolitan and things like that. It's, I mean, she does say, The Bachelor is only half man or half woman, dare to be pitied. Now, really, still, other publications, most others for that matter, ignore the existence of single women entirely. So she's kind of, she's kind of um, denigrating that approach, yes. which is they're kind of a, not quite the full person. I'd like to bring in our producer, Yanina Conboy, who's been rummaging in the FT library, blowing the dust off stacks of fading pink papers to look back over how we have covered the book in the past. Yanina, did we review Sex and the Single Girl in 1962? Uh, No, we didn't review it, as you can imagine. It wasn't really the FT's sort of thing. But Big mistake. <laughs> we, there was, in 1964, there was a roundup of the week's films by this guy called David Robinson. They tried to adapt the book to create this film. Was it a fiction? Um, it doesn't actually say. It basically talks about how it's an unadaptable book, which they've adapted <laughs> for film. <laughs> but the one thing he does say is, the book by Helen Gurley Brown, one of those books of fragmentary humorous thoughts and anecdotes which you get given at Christmas and can never decide which shelf it ought to go on. <laughs> and that was it. Who gave it to him? <laughs> The next time the FT then talked about the book was actually Lucy Kellaway upon um, Helen Gurley Brown's death. She wrote a column about how... When was that? Um, this was in 2012. And she talks about how she thought Helen Gurley Brown was a bit of a joke and everything. But then when she died, she sort of looked into her, her uh, work ethic, as it were. She comes to the conclusion that Helen Gurley Brown was, in fact, quite sensible and realistic when it came to work. So she has the, the endorsement of Lucy Kellaway, Sex and the Single Girl. And she makes comparisons with, um, at the time, Kate White was editor of Cosmopolitan and she herself had just released a book called I Shouldn't Be Telling You This. And Lucy <laughs> Kellaway <laughs> made the comparison with Helen Gurley Brown giving really quite realistic advice to people while she thought the modern version was a bit puffy and not that great. Which piece of advice in particular did Lucy like? She has sort of her top tips. In fact, the first tip in the modern book was that you you need to land a job that you're truly passionate about. And Lucy Kellaway points out that her, her words are, this is not only a complete yawn, it's a bum steer. With youth and employment so high, she should not be telling anyone anything other than to grab the least worst job going. This is the new book. This is a new book, yeah. yeah. Um, And then she goes on, compare this to advice from the real deal. Helen Um, Gurley Brown. Yeah. 
Lucy says she's been sifting through five decades worth of girly brown sayings and concluded that her true legacy was nothing to do with sex and everything to do with work. So the first bit of advice she picks up on is to shut up but Helen Gurley Brown puts it better and says never fail to know that if you are doing all the talking you are boring somebody. Lucy said she needs to learn this and she guesses that we do as well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The second tip is at first sight a strange choice for a career tip. While putting on her makeup, a girl should tell herself, tonight, baby, I'm going to get laid. But if you think of it metaphorically, this is just the sort of psyching that we all need to do every day. Not so much to get laid as to get paid. (laughs) How do I do that? (laughs) What makeup do I put on? And then her third tip, which Lucy highlights, is a great comfort to her. Um, Helly Gurley Brown says feeling insecure is good for you it forces you to do something better drives you to use all your talents lucy says i have long suspected that being neurotic is useful (laughs) even if tiresome for everyone else the best way to be good is to fear that you are useless emma can you give us a one sentence bluffer's guide to sex and the single girl well for the whole book i thought really the the um kind of summation would be look hot be fabulous but for the working (laughs) chapter i thought it would be just get on with it brilliant our sixth and final challenge is set by our very own andrew hill his book the wisdom of crowds by james suriecki over to andrew for his pitch so this is a book that came out in 2004 james suriecki is the new yorker's business columnist and it's a thought-provoking book that challenge the idea that strategy should be set from the top down by a few people under a strong CEO or transformational leader. And it came in the wake of a string of US business scandals that already chipped away at that. The title's a deliberate inversion of another great business book, Charles Mackay's Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, which was an 1841 book about speculative bubbles. And Suryaki shows that the combined views of many independent, diverse people are often more accurate and effective than the judgments of small, consensual groups of experts. And he draws on examples from psychology and behavioural economics, which I suppose puts the book at the kind of forefront of the later wave of similar books channelling academics' work in a popular way. Since 2004, of course, we've had the emergence of crowdfunding and crowdsourcing, all fueled by social networks that didn't even exist when he was writing. And I see it as a sort of manifesto, an early manifesto for greater diversity and collaboration in decision-making. Of course, we've also had the Brexit vote in Britain and Donald Trump's election, partly based on voters' rejection of the advice of expert elites. And so all that would give his conclusions now an interesting new spin. It's also a very nice read. You can join the discussion by tweeting us at ftworkcareers with the hashtag ftbizbooks or you can email us at businessbookclub at ft.com. We'll be back in the studio with Andrew in two weeks' time to discuss the wisdom of crowds and we very much hope you will join us. In the meantime, thank you to Emma Jacobs and to Andrew Hill and to our producer Yanina Conboy and thank you for listening. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams 
who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.